welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I am your host, Ray Harkins. I apologize. This episode was late. It's all my fault. I didn't do something properly, so my producer, Tom Richfield, could not properly edit the show. And that's my fault. Craziness ensued. Anyways, I'll, I'll tell you that in a minute. Let's talk about the guest. We'll get some business. Then I'll talk about what delayed this episode, and then we'll we'll dive right into the interview. Ayal Levi, he is a producer extraordinaire, as well as a founder of death metal, black metal, metal band called Doth. He's recorded, basically, if you are into heavy music of the metal variety, he's probably recorded a band that you enjoy. From Whitechapel to Black Dahlia Murder, he works out of Audio Hammer Studios in Florida. I've wanted him on the show for a while, but a friend of the show, publicist Ryan Friedman, hit me up about this, and I was like, you know what? Let's talk to him about that. I've known Ayal for quite some time because when I was working at Century Media, that's when we signed his old band, Doth. And I just, I locked into him. I just immediately felt a kinship with him, even though we came from two separate worlds as far as like, you know, metal and me being a punk and hardcore kid. And when I say two separate, it's not like we were, you know, on completely opposite sides of the spectrum. But nonetheless, we clicked, we bonded, and I felt a kinship with him. So more on him in a minute, like I said. Let's, let's, let's go about this in a methodic fashion. So for those of you that have noticed, the show is a new logo. The show has some new music that's being played. Big shout outs to Empty Design for doing the new logo and huge shout outs to Ben from Cloud Kicker for giving the music exclusively to the show. Granted, he may use it at some point in his own compositions, but as of right now, all this podcast. So yeah, you, if you want to hear nice Cloud Kicker music, you just listen to the podcast and that's it. So I got a lot of positive feedback for those two things and I'm just so excited because here we are three years into the show and I'm still excited about it. And that's, that's sometimes hard to do because, you know, after you get done with a few weeks and of something and then you're like, oh, but this kind of feels like work now. And yeah, there are certain elements of this that feel like work, but overall, it's so much fun for me to do and I love it. So thank you for contributing to the show financially. Thank you for the emails that you've sent. And I just, I love interacting with people. Just the other night, I was out at a show and someone came up to me and said, hey, I like your podcast. And hearing that is so awesome because then it connects the real world to the digital world and so many awesome things stem from that. So anyways, if you want to email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com and visit the website, 100wordspodcast.com. And so why, why this episode is delayed? Well, I'm an idiot and I didn't record this intro properly and I sent our producer, a blank file. Stupid me. And then he hits me up because he's like, hey, uh, that file's not working. Well, that's because I'm dumb. And then, oh man, I had to take care of a dog I found on the street. And let me tell you, it was a whirlwind 12 hours. Found him outside of a show and was like extremely, extremely friendly. Didn't know what to do because, you know, I mean, this was like midnight in the city of Pomona. And I'm like, um, I don't know. I guess I can look around for people. So try to call animal control. They are absolutely of no help. So I'm like, you know what? I am for sure not leaving this dude out on the street to potentially get hit, hurt, die, injured, bad stuff that can happen when you find an animal in need. Because, you know, me being the uh, the animal lover that I am, I was like, you know what? I got to take care of this. So took him home, slept in the garage next to him just so he could kind of calm down. 
but he was so friendly. And honestly, in less than 12 hours, when I dropped him off at the shelter, I was I was crying. <laughs> and I know that sounds melodramatic or cheesy or whatever label you want to put on it, but I was truly connected to this guy. So needless to say, right in the middle of that is when I discovered that I sent our producer a blank file. And you know what? Did you need to, the listener need to know that? No. But at the same time, it kind of gives you a a whole perspective, even though I've been told I use the word too much, but gives you a whole a whole picture of how this show comes together. You know, I try to be professional. I try to make sure that this thing comes out on time. And generally speaking, it does. Every Wednesday, you'll get an episode, but sometimes stuff happens. So anyways, without further ado, here is our discussion with Ayal. So many interesting things. Even if you don't care about the bands he's recorded or the fact that he's a producer, he has an amazing, amazing story. And he has a very, very interesting perspective on um, just work in general, putting the sweat equity into stuff. So here's my discussion with Ayal. I will talk to you after the interview is over. My own sort of personal interaction, introduction to you and and all of your... uh, your, your musical endeavors and talents and such. But I remember when I was working at Century Media and you, uh, you came by basically for an office visit. And, you know, usually those office visits, uh, you know, sometimes are awkward and kind of like, oh, I didn't know that this person was coming by. I remember you coming into the, to the office and I remember meeting you and maybe it was just at a certain time where I was kind of, uh, you know, frustrated with a lot of either the bands I was working with at the label or whatever. Uh, they just, uh, basically you seemed cool and you kind of seemed like, Oh, like this dude's on the level and he seems like he's got a good head in his shoulders about his band and the way that they want to like do things. I, I felt like so many of the bands that I was working with were just like, they were never rooted in any sort of like, I wouldn't even so call it like a scene, but it was just like, they just, you know, heads in the clouds. Like, oh, this is where we want to be. And this is like how big of a band we are. I don't know. You seem like the antidote for it. And I just picked a lot of that up in our, you know, whatever, 15, 20 minutes of hanging out there. Traveling in the worlds that you've obviously traveled in, meeting different bands from different genres. Like, would you classify yourself as kind of like, is my characterization of you uh, uh, accurate in any way, shape, or form? That that I'm much more grounded in reality than yeah. a lot of other people in this in this game. Yeah, yeah, and maybe in particular, obviously, like you know, metal, just because that obviously, you know, even though that comes from a scene, sometimes uh, you know, bands expect to be larger than they really are. So yes, yeah. a simple simple question is yeah. the, the rootedness. Well, look, that drives me insane with production as well is dealing with the disconnect between reality and dreamland that bands have. And mind you, we do need to say that this is not me saying that it's not okay to dream or anything like that. You need to have your dreams and you need to figure out how you're going to go about achieving them. And you need to be aware enough to know when you're off the path to your dreams enough to make conscious decisions to correct so you can get there eventually but the what you're talking about is just like this idea that some bands have that they are this size band and they just because they decided they are not because the world told them it's just they decided that they're this size band and they're going to act this way and so they 
try to structure their interactions with people and what they expect of people based on what size band they think they are or would really, really like to be. It kind of sucks. It kind of sucks dealing with them. So, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Right. And it, it was, yeah, like I said, I think it was just emblematic of maybe the time that, that I, like that particular moment at the record label where it was, um, yeah, I just I felt encouraged by our interaction because I was like, okay, here's a band that obviously firmly resides within the, you know, metal world, but doesn't have these sometimes like, you know, these inflated egos where, you know, whatever, they're huge in Europe and then they tour the States and they're like, why aren't there a thousand people at the show? And it's like, well, because no one cares about you over here. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, we're trying. Maybe because but, all you did was play some festivals in Europe, you idiot, and nobody was there for you. And you right. got this false impression of your own size. And you came back to reality and realized that you're a glorified local band on a label that doesn't give a fuck about anybody but vampires everywhere. So grow <laughs> up, you little piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I think the, the Vampires Everywhere reference will be lost to many, but you and I can identify with it. <laughs> okay, so for those who don't know what the Vampires Everywhere reference is, and since this podcast is supposed to be honest, we'll just say that there was this band called Black Veil Brides who was still around and killing it. And at one point in time, some people at Century Media thought that they had found the answer to Black Veil Brides, and this was this ridiculously awful band called Vampires Everywhere. Now, I'm not going to argue if Black Veil Brides is good music or not. That's not the point. But they are very popular, and they've stayed very popular, and there's a lot behind it, all the way from marketing to lineup choices to production choices. They've got it going on. So anyways, Vampires Everywhere was the Century Media answer to Black Veil Brides. And so it is fact that they just cut a lot of people's budgets and funneled that money into vampires everywhere in hopes of the next big thing, which just didn't really happen because they suck horribly. Yeah. God, if you think Black Veil Brides are bad, for those of you who don't like them, you should hear vampires everywhere. If you want to know what bad really is. <laughs> it's an important point that you make because there definitely is the context of you know deciding on something and making a market shift within the way that that bands at a record label are treated and you know that the your experience what you're talking about is is very uh yeah like i said emblematic and i, I think sometimes the the labels that obviously have you know more success over a longer period of time you know kind of stick to <laughs> stick to what they know and not in a you can't think outside of your own box, but like, you know, yeah, don't, don't make the, you know, analogous correlation of like, oh yes, well this must be popular. So we need to get something that looks like that, which is exactly what you, you, you describe. Well, yeah. Well, the problem with that is if you, you analyze something, you come back with certain data like, okay, so there's this band called Black Veil Brides and they're popular and they look kind of like Motley Crue and, they're popular with the teenies. So the answer must be, we need a band that kind of looks like that, that kind of sounds in that range, kind of like cock rock meets metalcore. And that's what's popular now. So let's just do it and it'll work. Now that's missing a very vital part of the equation. They're just correlating the data, but they're not taking it a step further. 
um, they're basically taking the data and correlating it to whatever they want it to mean. So if they think if they have a theory that girls are into guys that look like they're from Motley Crue, they're going to find the band that's popular that way and say, see, girls are into guys that look like they're Motley Crue. That's what we need to do. Instead of taking it a step further and actually analyzing all their different um, streams of income that they can, that you know, that they have access to, analyzing where on social media they're big, what market they're big in, what kinds of people those all are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, rather than taking a very superficial view of the band's success and correlating it to what you think it means. They may have found that it wasn't vampires everywhere that needed to be pushed, but you never yeah. know. No, no, you, yeah, you never know until it's it's tried. But yeah, you're right. The 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 false causal connection is not always the uh, yeah the way to go. But you were uh, backing up. You were you were born in Cleveland, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, I usually paint the Midwest with a very broad brush of being, uh, you know, very kind of boring. Is uh, was that your experience kind of growing up in the Midwest? I mean, you could say that, but my family's not American, and we traveled a lot, and we didn't exactly have an American household, so mm-hmm. it wasn't like your typical, you know, cornfield and cornfield and beer type upbringing. Right. I think. Right, right, right. So, yeah, and you, you're. It's noted you're. You know, you've mentioned in in many interviews, and a lot of people have brought up that your your father is a conductor and composer, and that obviously kind of you know sparked your interest in music because you were kind of surrounded by it. So that was the that that's the upbringing you're you're referencing as far as not typical. Yeah, exactly, and just things like the way that non-American families interact with each other and the things they find important are just different. And so I never, I don't know, I never thought my childhood was boring at all. I, you know, I didn't know I was in the Midwest. I didn't know what the Midwest was. I just, you know, was a kid and went to school and had some friends, had some enemies, played with some stuff, built some stuff, destroyed some stuff, (laughs) made some other stuff, pooped a lot. Right. <laughs> did you, uh, so what was the rest of your family structure like? Do you have brothers and sisters and what did your mom do for, uh, for a living? She was a teacher, I think. Okay. Hard to remember my mom working because she hasn't worked in a while. Okay. So, um, I think back then she was a teacher though, elementary Got. school. Okay. Um, that's all I really remember. Two brothers younger. Okay. So you were the, you were the elder, you were the one yeah. that was supposed to guide your younger brothers into, uh, some semblance of, of cool stuff. Man, I failed at that. <laughs> what, what path did they end up taking? The middle brother is in Hollywood trying to do the drama thing. Oh, okay. Um, and then my youngest brother, it, well, he's probably going to be okay. He's graduating with a business degree from, okay. Georgia State, so he'll be all right. He's probably that, the one that'll be fine. Right, that's practical. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you've mentioned, I'm not going to belabor the point with your your father being, you know, a conductor and a composer and everything like that, just because that's, uh, you know, it's it's pretty well documented in most of the other interviews that you do. But there obviously comes a point where I'm sure the music that you started to, you know, get into in your, you know, formative years in high school and stuff like that, your father probably was like. I don't understand this. Like, you know, this isn't, <laughs> there's, there's, there's nothing I can wrap my head around. So like, when was that sort of schism between the music that your obviously father knew and knew how to identify, even if it was obviously rock music, just by the sheer composition of it. Well, let's clarify um, something first. Please, please. Let's clarify. Dad's not the, uh, I don't understand this. 
why don't we sit here and talk about it? I cannot wrap my head around it. He's not that kind of guy. <laughs> okay. He's a, uh, this is shit. You should not be listening to this garbage kind of guy. Okay. What did, so, so what, what did you bring home that he said that? Well, I hit it. Yeah. I just, I remember him coming in one day when I was listening to like the black album by Metallica and him just pressing stop and saying, you should not listen to this garbage and leaving. And, uh, like, all right, I'm hitting play again. And then next thing I know, the stereo's gone. So mm, you I learned did, quickly. Yeah, I had to beg for it back. And then from that point on, I just hid my music. And that was that. Was, that. <laughs> was it sheerly just based off of the, obviously, the, the, the musical dissonance that he heard? Or was there any sort of, you know, religious overtones to like, oh, man, this is, this is filth he's listening to? The whole religious thing against metal is a very much American thing. And I mean, you see it in other countries, but it comes from it comes from a, an American religious right standpoint, and you have to kind of know their political agenda to understand that. And my dad, being a foreigner, just pretty new to the U.S. and not so privy to political leanings here, obviously that wasn't what it was. It just sounded like noise to him. Right, right. And you know, his pristine brain that only new classical music couldn't understand what this noise was, and he didn't want his oldest son to listen to it. So he took it away. And that's sure. all there is to it. Um, he really didn't. wasn't aware of any of the uh, censorship battles or Satan stuff or any of that. <laughs> yeah. did, you, did you find yourself being raised where you were, in some respects, you were obviously being like, I guess, shielded from American culture in, I mean, obviously reflecting back on it, is there anything that you can look yeah, at that? Yeah, I was or? totally shielded from American culture. I was okay. not allowed to go to public school. I was not allowed to watch MTV. I couldn't play video games during the week. No TV during the week, except for like one episode of G.I. Joe and then it's off. They And they made me do cultural things. I was totally shielded from American culture and I consider myself American and I'm not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'm like a yeah, patriot or anything, <laughs> anything like that, but I love it here, especially because I've gotten to see what the rest of the world is like. But, uh, it's probably a good thing that they saved me from backwards ass youth culture of this country because man, the way American kids are brought up, scares me for the future of this country sure so so in, in respects you look back on that and you're like even though it was a bummer at the time you're you're glad you had that sort of cloistered upbringing absolutely i mean just i i didn't develop video game addictions while i was in high school or middle school i didn't develop tv addictions so guess what i did instead i made music i drew books and wrote books. I was I illustrated them, so I said I drew books. But, but uh, I, I did things with my brain. I got horrible grades because I couldn't uh, bring myself to care about that. But I was still doing something, and that something was not watching TV like everyone else. I I did at times get bummed out about it, but I think it's one of the best decisions that could have been made. And to the American classmates of mine, it just seemed like living under the Gestapo or some shit like that. Like they couldn't imagine not being able to watch TV for like four or five hours a night and then do some homework. 
just reflecting on what you're talking about and then you know looking at at my completely american childhood where everything that you're talking about it wasn't to that extent but it was definitely there are shades of that you know i was never shielded from video games or anything like that but i'm an only child and and i was left to my own devices in regards to entertaining myself and you know while i did use whatever, you know, G.I. Joe's and all these other things to create these elaborate worlds. I do think you're hitting on a, a very important point of the the sheer time that people obviously invest in things and the sheer lack of, you know, creativity and imagination that can sometimes be uh, taken away when you are, like you said, just, you know, completely consumed by these things that, re- you know, really don't challenge you or <laughs> push any sort of uh, learning agenda on you. Yeah, and it's much worse today way worse today because the avenues for distraction are like times a thousand it's Mm -hmm. hard for me to even as an adult who was raised to not give in to distraction man it's tough because you're being bombarded by distraction stimuli everywhere everywhere you go everything you do is distraction 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 so Mm -hmm. i actually think that it's a lot harder for kids now than it was for me. For me, it was just either TV, VCR, or Nintendo. So then, as it, like you mentioned, you obviously didn't uh, necessarily identify with school and, and studying, and uh, that wasn't that wasn't something that was important to you. So, when did you kind of start to develop your your own musical taste? I mean, obviously, you mentioned Metallica. Like, did you know C- Cleveland is is known to obviously have a, a rich heavy music slash hardcore scene? You know, did you start to go to shows in high school and start to become aware of that that subculture, or was it a little bit later? Well, I was in a, I was in Atlanta. By oh, then. okay, got it. Um, yeah, I moved to. Atlanta when I was nine, and uh, I did start going to shows and having a band when I was like 13, mm-hmm. 14. Were you playing um, guitar in that? Yeah, I started playing guitar when I was 12. Okay. Oh, wow. You, that's, uh, that, that's funny that, <laughs> so you, you pick it up and within a year, you're like, I want to, I want to play in a band. Was that like the, the, the focal point? No, it was, I want to play in a band. I'm going to get a guitar. Okay. <laughs> Uh, did you did you go the traditional route of being introduced to you know the guitar teacher stuff, or was it like, all right, I'm just kind of noodling around and learning on my own? Okay, well, see, since I was 12 and not legally allowed to work, I had to get this through my parents, obviously, right. because another thing that they didn't teach me how to do is rob people. <laughs> That's good. So, uh, yeah, right. So I had to find a way to get them to give me a guitar. What I ended up having to do was agree to six months of classical guitar. And if I would do that, then I'd get an electric guitar. Because they wanted to, A, hopefully persuade me away from electric guitar. And B, not invest in electric guitar equipment if it was just going to be a passing a passing kind of thing. You had to so prove, you had to prove I, yourself. That's interesting. Yeah, so I did my six months. Right. <laughs> Um, and and at, at that time, at that time, were you pretty focused on um, like metal? Was that that the thing that you wanted to do from that perspective? Like heavy music was your your main identifier? Yeah, absolutely. Heavy music, and you know, some of the less heavy music that was big back then, like Alice in Chains mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But yeah, mainly heavy music. Um, I wanted to learn how to do anything Slash or Marty Friedman could do. Got it. Those those are your, uh, your your touchstones, as it were. Yeah. Um, so what did you uh, did you like moving to Atlanta? It seems like a pretty big shift from from Cleveland to Atlanta. I mean, granted, you were young, so I'm sure you don't remember much. But 
No, I did not enjoy moving to okay. Atlanta. I like Atlanta now, but I did not enjoy it back then. I think that's kind of part and parcel for most kids. Like when they have to move pretty much at any age between the ages of like seven or eight, when you're actually conscious and, you know, have friends up until like you're like 14 or 15. Those are the ages where if you move, you're just going to be resistant to it no matter what. Also, there was a big shift in that in Cleveland, we were kind of anonymous and in Atlanta, we were not anonymous as we we moved to Atlanta because my dad got a really big public okay. job. And so they changed everything. And, you know, our whole life was different. It was very, very strange. So, yeah, you went from being a totally anonymous kid to being like focus of a lot of people's attention. So you had to, because uh, the the job that he got, like you said, was in the public eye. What, what was he doing and, and how did obviously that sort of affect you, your view or your behavior? Well, he became the music director of the Atlanta Symphony. So it was all over all the papers and I guess it was one of those like the local celebrity type positions. And it was one of those things where, you know, they published salaries of local people they'd publish his in there too. So when you go to school, everyone's talking about your dad's salary. It's kind of weird, but, uh, you know, so kids don't, kids aren't really, uh, friendly to newcomers that they read about in the papers like that. So it, it was just, in, it was just interesting. Uh, definitely had to adjust to how, how it would be like to have to react to that all day long. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, um, that's kind of a powder keg of uh, of controversy when you you know set foot in your new school and everyone's just like, oh dude, so you're super rich, right? It's like, well, I don't, I, I don't know, like I don't, I don't see the money, like <laughs> it's not my concern, really. Yeah, I wouldn't even say super rich. It's just just that they knew who he was, right? So I'm sure, yeah, that comes with baggage in and of itself. Yeah, uh, just that they knew who he was and they knew. Let's just say that they had a competitive salary. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't know. It's it's just um it's hard to really describe in detail because it's so long right. ago. But let's just say that I had to learn how to navigate with eyes on me, mm-hmm. which I guess has uh, not changed right. since. <laughs> you know, were you kind of like a uh, I guess a, a typical archetype in regards to you know a musician slash metalhead? You know, were you adopting the fashion? Were you kind of you know looking for others that uh, identified with that as well? Yeah, of course. Um, now, mind you, I moved to Atlanta when I was like nine, so that didn't metal didn't happen for right. a while. But yeah, I was looking for other metal kids when I started to get into metal, but there were none. Right. <laughs> so that's another thing that's kind of different nowadays is that it seems like there's a lot more of them. Yeah. Well, I I definitely saw the the you know I'm sure this is kind of emblematic of your experience too, where it's like it wasn't so much like you know, whatever, metal, punk, hardcore, whatever genres that you want to call a particular lifestyle or aesthetic, people at that time just kind of gravitated towards one another because they knew it was like, oh yeah, I'm into, you know, whatever, the Pixies and, you know, Bauhaus. And then I'm also, you know, then, well, I'll hang out with the metal kid because like we're both into weird music stuff. Yeah, exactly. Because that defined you socially. Absolutely. Interestingly enough, I don't I don't know if it does anymore. I'm sure it does in some way. But uh, but the thing is, I prided myself in being able to go to multiple social groups through multiple social groups by the time I was in high school. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't want to get stuck with a lot of metal kids, even though I looked for them at first. After a while, I kind of realized that they were just overly dramatic and way too negative. Acted like losers, honestly. Like They vandalized too much shit got in too much trouble, were not really doing much. Like, you know, they wanted to be in famous bands and all that, but I was the only one who would practice five or six hours a day on guitar. They wouldn't really practice. They were more about wearing the shirt, getting into the fight at the show, and vandalizing the property. They weren't into actually making the music. And so I decided that I didn't really want to associate with those people too much and fuck them. I was just going to make my own friends. So I just walked through various different social groups mm-hmm. and had different kinds of friends. That's a, that's a really interesting point because I, I do think that there's something that is intrinsically tied to ambition when you're younger. Pretty much any circle of friends or ecosystem that you exist in, ambition is met with like, dude, why are you trying so hard? Like it, it's, it's cool to not try. You know, it's cool to not care, especially like you're talking about in high school. And so that's cool that you were able to identify the limits of whatever it was you were confronted with and then be able to kind of, you know, subvert that and move past that and realize there's a larger world out there. Yeah, well, it wasn't easy at times because it's a quick way to get ostracized by your friends. But hey, I mean, look, if there's two kids that are playing guitar that started at the same time, kid A plays some bullshit for 30 or 40 minutes a day and kid B plays some bullshit for 30 or 40 minutes a day. And for the first three months, they're kind of at the same level. Maybe kid A even gets better faster for some reason. But then kid B gets serious about it and starts playing three hours a day of structured stuff. Soon he passes kid A. Kid A is no longer the alpha. And soon kid A is in his rear view mirror as a guitar player. Now to kids, that can be harmful to your relationship as friends it's not it's not one of those things like if you know you're friends with an adult and you both start playing racquetball at the same time just picking some like random adult thing you're not gonna stop liking somebody because they got way better than you but as kids not so much so i kind of experienced that a few times over where i just took it more seriously than other people and you know as i got better they stayed the same and they didn't like me for it so fuck them right right so then uh, once you, like you mentioned, obviously you started your first, you know, musical band project, whatever you like to call it when you were 13. So did you immediately identify with the, I guess, live performance like that, that, that aspect of it, or was it just kind of, kind of the, the creation of it, um, was more appealing initially? No, we started playing live immediately. And you immediately identified with that. You were like, this is rad. I like this. Sometimes. Right. <laughs> I know it's a loaded question, especially looking back. Well, when you know when our shows went well, I loved it, and when they didn't, I hated it. Right. But the thing is that we still pushed through, and we still went to studios and made little EPs and kept going mm-hmm. and and tried to fill the room with more and more people and focused on that kind of stuff rather than just making music. Right. So I've always been of the mind that. If I'm just playing for myself or the bedroom, it's pointless. Yeah. No, like, there has to be some sort of a goal that involves doing something with it. it. Otherwise, why are you doing it? No, it's a, an important point. And you also strike me because you, you were essentially the business guy 
in uh, in Doth, I presume that pretty much all of your entities that you've ever done, you've been kind of the you know the the pusher slash business guy, where you're handling a lot of the you know logistics and organizational aspects of it. It's tr- that's true a lot of the times, not in everything I'm involved in now, but yeah, that's yeah that's generally been the thing. Mm-hmm. I just think that back then it's more because I cared more than anybody. <laughs> that, that was that was the 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 commonality where you're just like, well, I'm just I'm just gonna you know work harder at this. Maybe just because I I was bad with girls when I was younger and didn't have them to distract me or something. You, well, that that could be <laughs> that, that could be very true. Yeah, if you if you don't have these external things distracting you, you can obviously put all your eggs in that proverbial basket. <laughs> yeah, and also. See, the thing is, my dad's level of success to me was how I was brought up. So it didn't seem all that extraordinary. Um, I, I didn't think that that was that difficult to accomplish. It just seemed to me like you work hard and this is what happens, mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy. It's kind of weird thinking. But uh, I always just thought that, that that's what happened. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to work my ass off. And great things will happen. And a lot of people I knew said that it was super unrealistic. But since I grew up around it, it just seemed like real life to me. So I didn't. I also didn't have a lot of those blocks that other people had about working hard for it. Mm-hmm. A lot of people just didn't work hard for it because they were scared. It's true. That's a good. That's a cool way of looking at it. And obviously, like you said, you didn't have that filter, so you were able to, you know, just focus on on the actual work rather than the actual you know emotions of of you know fear doubt i mean everybody has doubt obviously but the 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 fear-based stuff is what you know can cripple people and obviously (laughs) lead them down a road that they'll never even feel like they can get on stage and perform or something like that so that's cool that you you were able to subvert that um and so I, I presume as you kind of, you know, went through high school and obviously like, did you go to college? Like, did you have any other focal points as far as like, oh, this is what I guess I'm practically going to do with my life? Or was it always just music, music, music? Well, I'm probably going to get hated, but I kind of wanted to enlist in the armed services when I was 18. Oh, okay. Um, uh, I didn't do it, obviously. Right, right. Well, what was the... Uh, what was the, I guess, desire from, and this comes from a, a very non-judgmental place, but what was the, what was the desire? The desire uh, being that, you know, my, half my family's in Israel and the other half is in Mexico. We, I grew up knowing how dangerous the world really is. Like we live in a bubble here in America, but I've had a firsthand look growing up in two unfriendly neighborhoods and just seeing how how much evil there is in the world, and I don't mean evil through heavy metal. I mean like evil that will cut your head off or that will gun you down or kidnap you for no reason to get in the fight. Uh, not necessarily, you know, as a as a foot soldier or whatever. I wanted to get in. Oh, I wanted to contribute mentally. I wanted to do something where I could use my brain to help the fight. Um, so I wanted to enlist and eventually move on to an intelligence career. And I was uh, seriously considering that too. My dad convinced me that mm. I had too much to give. I had more to give musically than to that world. It's a very practical approach. I like, like It's not running off of emotion. It's just purely running off of like, well, I, I think you would 
make more of a difference in this aspect than that aspect. That's the only other career choice I considered. Right. <laughs> so w- when did uh, when did Doth start to come into your uh, ecosystem? Like, I mean, you, but by this time you obviously had been of college age or what have you. When how old were you when Doth started? Nineteen or twenty or something. Um, I was going to Berkeley College of Music, bored as hell, not doing too well there. And I came to Atlanta <clears throat> over winter break, and I talked to a dude, and I asked him if we could do an electronic death metal side project. And we did it, and it was actually much better than the band I had going on back at Berkeley. So we mm. decided to start taking it seriously. That was around the year 99 or 2000 or something. Okay. And that's, that's when it started. Or I'm not going to run over the history of Doth because that's clearly well documented in <laughs> interviews and, and your own, uh, you know, your own Wikipedia entry as it were. But when a band becomes like your all consuming life, because, you know, you guys obviously put out records on Roadrunner and Century Media and, you know, you had a, a, a very hardworking yet, you know, relatively successful career just as far as like the, the sustenance of it, uh, where you were able to, you know, still put out records. Yeah, that's the amazing part. The, ama- the amazing right. part isn't any of the numbers we pulled. The amazing part <laughs> is just that we were allowed to keep going. Mm-hmm. And that's no, it's yeah, true. I know. It's very I know true. very well that it's true. We should have been dropped after record one and forgotten about, and somehow we made it to record three and kept touring on real tours. Mm-hmm. Also, right. unbelievable. Yeah, like there, there, there was a relevance around the band. Did you ever, um, you know, just because, like I said, the the band is all consuming and you, you obviously are completely connected with that. Did you ever, you know, as things started to, you know, whatever become unpractical from, you know, a, a financial perspective, did you ever have struggles within your own head of like where you were going to kind of pivot to, or was it just basically like, I can't, like, like you said, I can't even believe this band's still going. Like this is just, (laughs) this is all ridiculous. And you had kind of had your eye on the, on the recording stuff, um, in the distance. Yeah. Well, that's exactly it. The band was moving forward on sheer thrust that me and the other guys were creating, but mainly me. And if the other guys are listening, well, sorry, but like mainly me flying to LA and convincing people to do stuff and just like pushing, pushing, right. pushing, flying to Germany, pushing people to do stuff for us and just like working it, working it, working it. Because if I didn't, people would stop caring in five seconds about us because we didn't sell that many records. So it was a lot of fucking work on my end to be able to get us moving. Um, Now, the band itself put up a shitload of work when we were actually on the road to put on the best show possible to like make these lights that were ahead of their time and all this stuff but like to actually create the opportunities themselves in the first place was like pushing a boulder up a mountain because we didn't have the sails to back us up so it was super exhaustive and as you can imagine not too much money was coming in and so yeah at some point there's like all right how much longer are we going to keep doing this for like we've had our fun we've been on mtv we toured the world we've done festivals in Europe and the US, been to Japan, put out lots of records, worked with the best producers. What else do we need to do to like, you know, check that off on the list? Like we've done it. 
Like we have not achieved the part that's out of our control, which is the it becoming a viral success or whatever. But you can't control that part. But as far as everything that we could control to make the band a success, we did. And once I was comfortable with that, which was sometime in the middle of record two, once I was comfortable with that, then I, then I started to think, okay, well then, now that I feel this way, how much longer can I actually keep up this level of effort? And I immediately started looking for other options. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you laid it all out like that, because I definitely think it, it's, I mean, honestly, that's, that's what endeared me to you in the first place, because you, you, I could tell it was through, like you said, the, the sheer force of inertia, where it was like you were creating the momentum and it wasn't because of, you know, you guys were ever a quote unquote hype band. There was like, you know, there were element, there were pockets of that time, but it was like you were just trying to capitalize on those and obviously was trying to link those into, you know, a, a longer career based off that fact. But I think a lot of people of bands of varying sizes, you know, could take some of those principles and obviously be able to apply that same level of hustle, regardless of if you're a hype band or not, like that will hopefully be able to sustain you for a little bit longer. If you have that work ethic, if you're a hype band, you have no fucking excuse. It's true. It's true. <laughs> Everyone in a hype band should learn to be a millionaire. And I'm serious. Right. You can do it with all the, like every member of suicide silence <clears throat> and every member of Attila should be a millionaire and if they're not it's there's something wrong there <laughs> yeah they're do, they're doing something because wrong. if my band could make the same amount of money per week per member as a lot of the dudes in the bigger bands we were sharing buses with just because we were being entrepreneurial about it and seizing every opportunity my band my tiny little band that only got anywhere because i fucking flew around the world and talk people into putting us on tours. If we could do it, then there's no reason on earth why a band that actually has a huge fan base and real tour opportunities can't capitalize in a way to uh, make them be pretty well off. Periphery mm -hmm. do it pretty well. That's a good example. That's a very good point. You started to have your eyes on the, the recording prize, as it were. It wasn't was so it? much that. It was just that I was looking for for the next step. The next, yeah, yeah. The next pivot, as it were. Yeah. And so what, you know, I, I know this sounds like maybe kind of a stock, cheesy question, but because you have such an extensive experience in regards to not only performing music, but obviously recording music, writing, all that stuff. I know a lot of people, I mean, I'm, I'm projecting here because I, I, I personally, uh, I, I don't necessarily enjoy recording. I, I, I like certain people that to record with that obviously bring the sort of best, you know, vocal performance out of me or whatever. But what aspects, you know, or what uh, part of the recording slash engineering process do you personally kind of like identify with the most where it's like, I get the most personal enjoyment out of, you know, drum edits or whatever, you know, using random examples, but like, what, what do you personally get the most enjoyment out of? I don't really know. That's a good question because I, I kind of I'm over it as well at this point <laughs> with <Yeah>. recording. Um, <laughs> sure. Because the one thing that we n never mentioned here is that I started recording the same year that Doth began. You were built, yeah. You were building up those principles in conjunction with the band. Yeah, exactly. So I started recording professionally in about 2003. That's not like a new thing for me. You were able to focus on it at that time, like later when you were able to apply those principles you learned to a more full-time experience. Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, by 2006, when Doth was signed, 
I kind of wanted to quit recording because I hated working with bands. Mm-hmm. So I was really, really thankful that the record deal came along and that maybe I could record less and focus on other things uh, because it was making me insane to work with bands. You know, lots of the same things you said about your time at Century Media. Well, that doesn't change when you're in the studio. You just change the scenario. Say it's not that they're talking to you as the record label person and they're expecting you to make them something they can't be in the studio. It is that, but with music, it's like, I didn't really finish writing this song. Can we record it? Here's a bunch of riffs I can't actually play. Let's record it. But I want it to sound like this record I love that had five times the budget and players that rule. So I don't, I don't know. That's, that started to make me crazy, so I was happy to stop. And when I came back into it, I noticed that that didn't really change too much. Uh, bands are pretty much like that. Yeah, that that's true. That, that that's definitely, um, I, I guess, that quality is timeless. So you reflect on your time now, currently, like obviously knee deep in in recording, and and from that perspective, so it. There, there's no aspect that you really kind of can identify as far as. No, I'm actually taking a six month uh, hiatus from recording. Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not knee deep in recording right now. Thank God. What, what do I like about it? I like. This is going to sound crazy, but the thing I liked the best about it was showing other people how to do it. The teaching aspect of it. Not teaching like mm-hmm. guitar lessons or whatever. Like the stuff I was doing with creative live or the boot camps that kind of stuff i was actually enjoying that a lot more than actually working with the bands believe it or not and that's crazy to me because i hate giving guitar lessons and i just i hate that sort of thing and i hated school but being honest with myself i got a lot more out of going on creative live and talking about this stuff and helping people out than sitting there with another band with the same fucking breakdown and the same idiot band members, mm-hmm. just different names, as the last 18 bands putting out the same garbage that's killing our industry over and over and over and over. Um, that was starting to really wear me down. I have a very, very negative opinion of the recording process now because I feel like it is part of the virus, part of the cancer, mm-hmm. depending on how you look at it. So I felt like going out there and helping people get better at it would be my way of maybe raising the bar a little, maybe possibly helping people add some standards to their work, possibly. Maybe by raising the bar and by helping people raise their standards, a few of the people who us pros would have to mix would deliver us some better quality tracks or hell, maybe more people putting out their own music would be putting out better quality music, which would then have a little more value to it, maybe, possibly, might help it get taken seriously just ever so slightly more than before. Maybe, possibly. Maybe I'm the dreamer. But I think that that was my way of creating a little bit more value than to just take one more band in, one more band out, the fucking horrible machine that's just making music mm-hmm. suck. Well, no, no, I, I, mean, I, I can understand exactly where you're coming from. It is weird the correlation between like you know playing in a band and and playing shows and stuff like that to teaching because there are a lot of people who have played in bands that are like you know 
when they're off the road, they're like substitute teachers because the correlation between those two is somewhat analogous because, you know, you're obviously, you know, from an entertainment perspective, you're sitting there in front of people and entertaining them for that period of time. And, you know, you could obviously argue that you're doing the same thing if you're teaching from an entertainment perspective, but then also you're actually hopefully affecting some semblance of change. And so I could see why that is exciting for you because, yeah, you're not just, like you said, part of part of that machine of, of creating sort of, you know, faceless bands, but you are hopefully impacting people using those, you know, principles that you've learned. And also I think importantly, the kind of mindset that you're going at it with where it's like, Hey, this is how to record a, a real band, like with people actually playing music in the studio. Do you guys know what that is? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just, I think that there's more people right now interested in learning how to do it for themselves than there are interested in paying other people to do it for them. And maybe, and I, I feel like those numbers are changing as well. Like I feel like the number of people who want to do it themselves is going up while the number of people willing to pay other people for it is going down. And that's, I feel like that's one of those numbers that we can't fight just like we can't fight the whole downloading thing and people who think we can, what else can I say? They're retarded. Like, they're so stupid. How can you fight a tsunami? Anyways, so I feel like the number of people that are wanting to do this for themselves are going up. And so that's where the demand is. And that's a perfect opportunity to help raise the bar for everything. Because if music is better, people will take music a little bit more seriously. That I'm pretty sure of. Whether or not they'll buy buy it more, I, yeah. don't, I don't know about that. You could feel like you could feel like you can go to sleep at night because you're contributing this as opposed to the, that. <laughs> yeah, and also um, I'm also looking at it from a ten years out. Um, if this trend continues, what does that mean? If the trend continues that DIY is overtaking everything in recording. Less and less people are interested in paying other people to record them. Where does that lead 10 years out? Right. No, true. It's mm -hmm. for the studio, for owner, Absolutely. or for the producer. The, la the last thing I want to hit on, just because I, I think I think it's an important point, the general consensus, um, and, and I, I'm, I'm applying this to you, whether or not you <laughs> whether or not you agree with me is a different story, but you know, I mean, you're opinionated, and obviously like what you're talking about, uh, all the opinions you're sharing on here are obviously you know, visceral and, and reactive, where people could obviously be like, oh, no, fuck that. But generally speaking, the way that you present yourself is, is that you're nice. Um, like people, you know, I, I don't see many people being like, oh, dude, fuck him. Like he's, he's the worst. And if they do, it's usually something that's inconsequential. It's like it's their own insecurities. That isn't the default habit for a lot of people just to kind of you know whatever the golden rule of treat treat each other like how you want to be treated do you uh does that come like i guess naturally to you is that like your your own personable self or is that something that you've kind of uh i guess evolved in over time i mean ever since i've known you you've always been just you know a stand-up dude and i've never like i said i've never heard anything bad about you from that perspective so i'm sure you'll find bad stuff if you look sure, hard yeah, enough as as most people but yeah, generally speaking, like I guess what I'm trying to ask is obviously like the is 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 your sort of default being like, yeah, I, like I want to be nice, I want to be good to people, or is that something that you've obviously had to kind of grow into and learn as you as you grow older and mature? It's my default, and as a matter of fact, as I get further in life, it's something that I need to make sure I keep in check. You know, when you swim with sharks, 
if you don't become one, you get eaten. So I find that if I'm not careful, that default mode of just being cool starts to slip. And I do start to become more of an asshole. And I do start to give people less of a chance and, you know, so on and so forth. All these uh, music industry veteran uh, cliches. So actually, I have to work a lot harder at it now than when I used to. Um, then, I mean, then, then I used to have to. And But it is my default. The thing is that if you're in a certain environment long enough, you'll start to take on the characteristics of that environment. And you know, so your environment is rife with drama and childishness and negative mm-hmm. shit. You will start to take on characteristics of someone that's childish and and vindictive and negative and those are characteristics of the music industry anyone that's in it knows that so you know i have to make a special effort to try to remain you know cool right (laughs) no that's true yeah you you definitely could be impacted like you said, very negatively by the the environment that you're surrounding with or or the industry, as it were. So I really appreciate you hanging out. This has been a, a fun chat and we Thank got you. to hit on some some important points that I wasn't even anticipating. So you did a great job. <laughs> Good. Thanks. Glad to help. Yeah, no problem, man. So there you go. There's I all. Great story, right? Composer father. Crazy, right? To have that much music coming into your head at an early age must be pretty intense and daunting because you're like oh i want to make my own stuff but look at my dad here's this thing he's doing so anyways thank you to i all thank you to ryan friedman his publicist thank you to tom richfield as always for making sure that this show sounds as good as it does and is edited and produced appropriately even though i sometimes fail that so thank you tom Visit 100wordspodcast.com. You can email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. Please do that. I like creating these these friendships with people because, you know, they throw some guest suggestions. I ask them why that's interesting, and then I ask them where they're from, and it just kind of spirals into there. And then I get a nice little life story about what it is that this person finds of value in the show. So, anyways, those are the things. Until next week, and I promise I'll be on time. Be safe, everybody. Be safe, everybody.